going into marriage, someone understands that your spiritual state is yours to manage alone. Dark corners of our spiritual attic that we don't want to clean out. And they're constantly focused on what they're not getting, what they're not getting, what they're not getting, what they're not getting. Are we really what we think we are, or are we wherever we are with Allah? You know, real love is always in action. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have Sister Megan Wyatt. She is the founder of Wives of Jannah, where she focuses on her passions of relationships in order to support Muslim wives and couples in strengthening their marriages while building a bridge between our Islamic frameworks and modern developments in the field of personal development and relationship and marriage support. Sister Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So today I'd like to dive into relationship uh, key concepts and skills. And one of the things that has often surfaced in my work, especially with um, bachelors and bachelorettes is, you know, what do I need to know before I get married? How do I know if it's Mr. Right or Mrs. Right? Um, you know, these are all the things that I think a lot of people tend to ask themselves. So what I wanted to do today is just start exploring with you from your work and experience. And of course, your, you know, firsthand uh, marriage, marital experience as well. You know, what would you like to start us off with as far as essential things that we should be aware of, perhaps demystifying any myths or things regarding what we should know or do before marriage, and maybe some ways that we can reduce harm or um, poor decisions, let's say? Well, obviously, this is a big topic. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of approach this. And I've been working with, you know, from the single side to the getting married part, through people, you know, going through the engagement process to marriage for for many years now. And I've tried to sort of boil things down to a couple of different, like, you know, if someone's saying like, like you just said, what are the things I really need to know before I get married? What should I be working on? What should I be focusing on? It's, it's vast because really anything you're doing to productively prepare yourself for marriage, inshallah, is going to be to your benefit but I've spent a number of years really trying to narrow down now that I've also spent, you know, a decade plus working with people who are married as well. You know, what is it that I wish that they would sort of have known going into marriage? And I think one of the, the things that really is clear for me personally is that people have a mindset that life is a journey of growth. Hmm. And I say that because obviously being in the coaching industry, personal development is something I'm really passionate about. And it's something that for me personally is sort of one of my main vehicles for growth and learning and development about myself first and foremost. And when people come to marriage or they're going through the marriage process, specifically, let's just start with like the marriage process. A lot of times people are looking at that person across the table or I don't know if it's on Minder now or whatever website people are using to find someone. And they're thinking about what is that person going to do for me or give me? And there's, of course, like a natural side to that because you're obviously looking for someone that's going to also enrich your life. But I feel that ultimately there isn't the idea that you're going to be getting married, which means you're going to be challenging all of your personal limitations, your mindsets, your beliefs, your fears, marriage is going to uncover. I always tell people, I think that marriage is one of the greatest invitations to spiritual, psychological, and emotional development. And then after that, it will be having kids because kids will also 
you know, if if your spouse doesn't like turn over every rock that you've not explored in your life, your kids will do that for you as well next. Absolutely. But I mean, yeah. Um, But, you know, so as getting married, I really want people first to recognize that, you know, life is supposed to be a journey of growth, of spiritual growth, of emotional growth. We're not supposed to be the same person a decade from now. Oh, yeah. We should we should change. We should evolve. We should develop. And so I like for people that are single to sort of start out with this mindset of growth. Like, what are you doing to grow spiritually and psychologically and emotionally? How are you challenging your fears? How are you looking at your personal limitations? And a lot of times people are like, what? Limitation, fears, beliefs? Like, what are you even talking about? And it's like speaking a foreign language. And I can relate to that. Because before I personally fell into sort of, I always say I kind of fell into the personal development realm because that's literally how it happened. I didn't have this idea of like challenging my fears and pushing myself out of my comfort zone and what are my limiting beliefs. Like all of this language I think is a lot more popular now and I think people are more exposed to it. But in, but still just to really think that my life is all about growth and it's either going to be a test that, you know, it's there to squeeze out and help you look at one of your fears. You're going to go through a test in life to help you come closer to Allah. You're going to go through a test in life that's going to you know, challenge what you thought you could handle or do. Ultimately, life's about growth. And I feel like just having that mindset from the get-go. Is wise. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Because then when you get married and all of a sudden your spouse is pushing all these buttons, what happens is people are sort of like, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't how it's supposed to go. Things are supposed to be easy. Things are supposed to be lovely all the time. And the reality is whatever buttons they're pushing in you are the very things where you're being invited to grow and to expand and to learn more about yourself. So I I really like to start with growth. I think that's the first one. All right, great. Let me just summarize the highlights here. So number one, there's this idea of utility factor. Um, Often we approach spouses as, what am I going to get out of this? What can he or she do for me? So I'm only assessing the value that they bring me. And rather, it might be um, healthier, of course, to consider marriage as a pursuit of service, amana from Allah, trust and growth, as you're saying, because this allows you to be more open to the curveballs that will come with marriage. And, you know, the first year or two of marriage is a lot of adjustment and adaptability and resolution to begin with. So we have to, if we just approach it as, okay, you look great on paper, you have all the things that I assume will be what I'm thinking as far as my needs being fulfilled. And then things start to happen where, oh, turns out they're a human being that's not this static crystallized image in my mind. And they actually are a living, breathing being that may have, um, you know, disagreements with me or not not everything is going to flow 100% blissfully. And if we're so attached to a crystallized version of the person, especially based on how their value is only utilized for my own gain, I'm going to be a very unhappy camper because our attachments are proportionate to our suffering, right? The nature of our attachments or expected outcomes is definitely proportionate to our suffering. So if I walk in with this very binary or simple uh, lens, I'm already setting myself up for uh, disappointments. Then you also mentioned that if the human being, you know, sees their life as a constant developmental journey of growth, we're not static creatures, we're ever evolving. And absolutely, I agree with you. Uh, This includes a very important highlight, which is challenging our fears 
you know, getting comfortable with our own discomforts. And like you said, a lot of people don't even know what that really means. So maybe you can start with that. What does it mean to challenge your fears or discover your fears or what you're uncomfortable with? How do we start to shine light on all those blind spots and dark corners of our spiritual attic that we don't want to clean out? Oh, spirits, that's deep. Well, um, by the way, you, you did a summary. It was much more like clear than what I was saying. So just no um, that's why I'm here. I'm the facilitator. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, I, so how does one challenge fears? So I think we often need a process for that because I, well, there are one or two ways it's going to happen. One is you're going to be forced to face a fear and that's going to be through some test that comes in your life, something that's going to invite you to, to have to push yourself. Or second is we can create that environment. And so, for example, with coaching, that's that's probably one of the top things I'm doing all the time is people are like, I have this goal. I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to stop doing this and I don't want to experience it anymore. And I'm like, that's great. And in order for them to experience, whether it's new feelings or new activities or to reach that goal, usually they're going to come up against, you know, some kind of a belief that is getting in the way about themselves, whether that has to do with lack of confidence, the lack of belief in themselves, um, or it's going to bring out a fear, you know, I can't make it, I'm not good enough. Um, spiritually, a lot of times things pop out where it's, I don't think Allah loves me, I think Allah hates me, I don't think Allah's on my side, I don't think Allah answers my dua. So every time we have sort of an environment that it, that we're trying to set up for ourselves of, of thinking of, well, what do you want in your life? What do you want to accomplish? What would you like your life to look like? Obviously, as human beings, especially as Muslims, we recognize that we we don't we're not the ultimate designers of our life. Allah is the ultimate designer of our life. But within whatever time and capacity we have, that's the part that we get to build, control, and design. So on the smaller scale, right? So what you focus on, what you spend your time on, do you spend, you know, five hours a day scrolling through Facebook or do you spend five hours a day, you know, doing something or creating something that's going to change the world? Um, everybody has the opportunity to create meaningful goals. And I think for a lot of individuals, especially if we come back to the singles, you know, especially, you know, people that are in their early to late 20s, you know, even to the early 30s, people's main focus at that time tends to be either education, starting a career, stabilizing a career. Um, so there is obviously, there's kind of a period of, of life where, you know, the ultimate goal seems to be sort of set for you, right? Get your degree, get your master's or get your PhD or get your job, get your career going. Um, but I really like to invite people to think beyond that. Like where, what kind of a human being do you want to live as? And when we get to the being part, um, you know, because it's easy to say, well, you know, I want a job that makes X amount of dollars, or I really want to get into the school, you know, and do my PhD or, you know, whatever. It tends to be kind of financial as like my, my teen daughter said to me the other day, she says, I feel like in the adult world, everything is just about numbers. Getting into college is about numbers. Those numbers mean the degree you're going to get and the numbers there mean the job you're going to get. She says, I feel like the world measures everybody by numbers and digits. How sad, how sad and insightful. <laughs> very insightful and she was like just about to turn 17 and so I said you know and so we had to expand that because she's been raised in this world where we homeschooled for most of you know her education and we have a very rich home life alhamdulillah but now that she's preparing for college she's she is right like the world tends to measure you by numbers and so how do we get people to kind of come back and focus on the being that they want to be and ultimately all of that's going to come back to having to challenge yourself in some way, because when you set a goal of the kind of person you want to be in the world, you're inviting yourself to growth. Um, 
that's kind of where I go with that. So it's like, how do you do it? Like I said, it's either you're going to be put in a situation, Allah will put you in a situation where you will be forced to grow or be in a lot of pain, or you can create that environment for yourself by really thinking about who, who you want to be in the next five to 10 years. What kind of human being do you want to be? And with that then comes those tangible goals of what you're actually going to do to actualize that, you know, that, that image. Yeah, this is great because obviously when a human being is first developing, one of the primary emotions or experiences is the differentiation between plain pain and pleasure. Mm -hmm. Right. And so later in life, when we find ourselves in a painful or difficult situation, we're so fixated on removing the pain as soon as possible, even synthetically to go back to pleasure or comfort or tranquility. And we don't realize that um, it's not just about getting back to pleasure. It's also about why is this happening? Mm -hmm. uh, what am I supposed to be awakened to? Because this pain that exists may exist because of a particular situation, or it could be resurfacing a pain I've been carrying for a long, long time. And I've gotten all these almost like alarm bells from Allah to, hey, stop hitting the snooze button. It's time to wake up about this particular item. So for instance, when I have like, you know, a parents call me and they say, oh, our daughter ran away from home to be with her boyfriend. Can you, you know, basically help us? and you know essentially fix her yeah, right yeah. it's like no this is this is also usually an awakening for the whole family to reconcile their emotional intimacy you know uh, processes mm -hmm. or communication or lack of i mean she's not just running away because you know she just wants to be a rebel it's like there's a lot of uh, consequential and sequential events that led to this so then you find that the whole family awakens from a fitna like this and it's not just about that one person, but that we're all products of our families, our environments, and of course, our choices along the way. So when we get these difficulties, you're reminding us of, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, he's not testing you to say, oh, this is to show you I don't like you, or you're in big trouble. Allah tells us everyone's going to be tested. It's inevitable. It doesn't matter what your race, creed, or financial status is. Everyone's going to go through challenges because that's the nature of this world. But Allah says, but who of you will be be best in dealing with it, right? Mm -hmm. But which amongst you will have ihsan with your tribulations? Because we can deal with harm or negativity or evil by ignoring it, um, replacing it synthetically, or becoming evil, right? Those are just a, a couple of options. There's other things too. But the point here is that is evil and, and uh, pain always mean, or is it always synonymous with Allah's displeased with me, I'm failing, I'm, I'm going down the wrong direction? It's like, no, absolutely not. Because mistakes and failures uh, teach us forever acquired important lessons and how to refine. And nothing beautiful or successful ever went on this smooth, blissful track, you know, straight up. There was always um, difficulties and barriers and ups and downs along the way. This is what you're, you're suggesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and with that, I think I've got two thoughts. One of them um, is, especially I think for a lot of people today, when they are, a lot of singles will say, I'm afraid of getting married because I, of all the people that I know that are married, no one's happy. And the second thing is when people are married and they start to have some ups and downs and troubled waters, they think that, you know, this is a sign they made a mistake. And of course, there are there are issues that, you know, definitely require immediate uh, intervention. You know, those would be things of emotional abuse or physical abuse or drug you know usage or 
um, pornography addiction. Like there are definitely some really major, you know, heavy hitters that require some immediate intervention. But outside of that, um, I definitely come across a lot of individuals that just have this idea that it's so fascinating because as Muslims, we constantly hear and constantly tell ourselves and believe that life is going to be a test. But for some reason, when it comes to marriage, everybody thinks that doesn't apply. SubhanAllah. Or parenting, <laughs> which which you'll learn later, yeah. but go ahead. <laughs> sure, yeah, or parenting. But it's just something about relationships where we feel like everything should just be easy all the time. And for those who are single, I often say it's, you know, the responsibility on those of us who are married to say, hey, listen, yes, it's challenging and there are ups and downs, but it's worth it. It is worth it. Hang in there. You know, the the level of, of emotional intimacy you're able to develop with another person, the life experiences that you're going to share, the things that you can build together can be amazing, but you've got to hang in there. And I think people need this assurance. To, and that's why I keep coming back to that invitation that, you know, we say marriage is, you know, for, I don't know, some people say it's only for the man, whatever, that leave the, the fixed stuff to our, our teachers. But the idea that marriage is half one's dean, right? This, this very, this phrase, and we've made it popular, you know, I want to get, you know, half my dean accomplished. You know, I, I often look at that and I say, because marriage, it makes so much sense to me, because it is such a huge invitation to grow and to develop. And that kind of brings me to the next, one of my next things I often tell singles is that, your spiritual state, your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your iman, all of that is yours to manage alone. And when people are looking to get married, you know, of course, you know, one of the ideal things on the checklist is finding that righteous spouse. And for sure, you know, you look for a righteous person and you look for someone that, you know, is matching at your level and someone that, you know, you can be in sync with spiritually. But ultimately, your spiritual state is yours, 110% your responsibility. And I see either singles getting, you know, wanting to get married and they're looking for someone that they imagine, like for the women, they have, it's, it's really beautiful. And it's not that it's not possible somewhere in the picture, but they imagine that they're going to have this husband who's going to like gently nudge them every morning at Fajr and they're going to get up and make wudu together. They're going to pray Fajr together. They're going to read, do the dhikr together. They're going to do du'a together. They're going to read the Quran together. Then he's going to like teach her a lesson and reflection together. Like, and it's a really beautiful uh, idea and it certainly is possible. And I know there are people who do a lot of things like this together and it's wonderful. And then I go, and then your first child comes along. And that together gets a lot more complicated because you haven't slept in six months and the baby, and mashallah, you know, you and your wife, you have twin little ones right now, plus a toddler. You're in the thick of it one way or another. You know, it's predictability goes out the window. And all of a sudden, the things that maybe used to do together are a lot harder. You know, that peaceful prayer together. Well, there's a child climbing on your back. There's another one that's crying, you know. There's stuff that's happening. And so, again, that test comes back in. And so what happens is people start, their, their iman can suffer at times because they're looking for their spouse to be their teacher. They're looking for their spouse to be the one that picks them up. And so if going into marriage, someone understands that your spiritual state is yours to manage alone, that on the day of judgment, you answer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala completely alone. You don't get to blame your spouse for what you didn't read, what you didn't memorize, what you didn't, you know, what lecture you didn't listen to, what book you didn't finish, the dhikr you did or didn't do, like, it's really so important to, to recognize that this is your job. 
And if one spiritual state is intact, you know, it, then a lot of other things are going to be easier. So it doesn't mean there aren't going to be challenges, but when you're emotionally grounded as a person, because you've been focusing on all that personal development, right? And your Iman is strong, then the things that are going to happen in life, you're going to be able to weather them much better because Islam gives us, you know, tools to utilize at our hardest moments. But if you're not taking care of your Iman while you're single, and then you think when you get married that somehow your spouse is going to be like your teacher, your sheikh, your sheikha, your whatever, then things are going to go downhill because once you lose that relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it's not as strong, we can't be surprised that then there will be different issues within the marriage itself. Yeah, I was going to say, you're also bringing up this point of we've got to remove this construct of the savior mentality, Mm -hmm. whether it's with a spouse or imam or anybody, right? And rather we have to have the, I need to embody, model, and um, give advice mentality, right? Like we have to uh, be proactive with our own spirituality as well as with those who matter to us, right? We can't just say, oh, well, since they're not, you know, reminding me, then I don't need to really do it, or they don't pray, so why should I pray? You know, it's like, no, in the end, you have to have that personal accountability and responsibility between your relationship to the divine is always the primary, and your relationship to your husband, your children, your wife, your your friends, your family, is secondary relationships to the divine. That's how I see it, because if your divine's intact relationship, you're going to, inshallah, optimize and, and probably be progressing in your created relationships or their relationships in creation to be more specific right so that's one two half our dean we're always talking about it but is half our dean just signing a contract and now i've completed half my dean right now of course not no it's about all the things i thought i had or gained or accumulated is now going to be tested refined optimized or even denied right? You think you're a patient? Well, turns out when you're married or have kids, you're going to learn what patience really is. It's it's not the same as being a patient bachelor, you know, with your mom not folding your laundry right when you live with her, right? <laughs> That's not necessarily the, you know, eliteness of, of patience, right? But half our dean is about, okay, whatever I've cultivated as an individual, now I put that to the test and it gets refined and my current qualities that are good grow and expand and become richer. And I also learn what I still don't possess or is still suboptimal. That's the beauty of a real conscious, you know, relationship where we, we actually wish well for each other. Because it's not about if, if, again, we have that egoic utility approach of, well, you're not the way I wanted or you're not acting the way I've pictured. I didn't sign up for this. I've heard that so many times. Yeah. This isn't what I signed up for. I don't love them anymore. It's like, no, you just you're just not you're realizing that the construct that you were in love with isn't real and you don't know how to deal with it. And now you just want to run away or marry another woman or divorce or cheat or whatever it is, right? And that's happening, unfortunately. The other point you're mentioning is um, that if Islam is is really centralized in each uh, spouse's lives, this creates a sense of spiritual immune system which allows us to be able to take on the challenges and tribulations which inevitably will come for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. Everyone has to remember this. And so without that, just like if you don't take care of your health and your body, you won't fight off germs and bacteria to the same degree as if you did. So spiritually, there are you know germs and bacteria of existentialism that we have to make sure we're in good health. And I would also add to that that part of Iman, because Iman means to entrust 
trust, to protect, and to have security, is that if I'm going to entrust myself to this person or this opportunity of marriage, it's a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and in order to protect that and to give it more security, I also have to seek the necessary knowledge to enhance in that. It's not just enough to know all the fiqh rules or the theology, right? It's about emotional intelligence and communication skills and male and female psychology. And of course, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us about the design of male and female. These are important things to keep in mind. So would you say that's also part of iman and completing half your deen is also seeking the knowledge that is not necessarily cloaked in Islamic terms or, or clothing, but is also has to do with anything that brings you closer to what is true, good and beautiful, no matter what it is, job, marriage, fixing a car, etc. Well, I mean, that kind of comes back to like my first point then is that, yeah, of course, you should be seeking knowledge in all of these areas. But to do that means somebody has already bought into the idea that life is about growth. And those are the people that seek knowledge, and they read books, and they read articles, and and they go online and they watch videos. You know, there are the individuals who go through life who are seeking to learn and grow consistently and add to, you know, their knowledge bank. And then there are others who feel like I'm perfect. I'm amazing. <laughs> um, I don't need to do anything like that, you know. And so they limit knowledge to maybe the basics of Islam, perhaps. Or even, you know, what's fascinating is you have these hardcore students of knowledge and, you know, they, they know a lot about Islam itself. But when it comes to actualizing that, again, with marriage and, and family life, they might know, like you said, the rights of, you know, the, what the husband knows his rights as a husband and the wife, you know, might know some of her rights as a wife. But it's kind of and I think that's part of when I started Wives of Jannah, I kind of I went into the deep end, starting with like the topics of like sex and intimacy and bigger conversations, because when it came to understanding what all this looks like in practice in an actual relationship. I found a lot of people were really confused. They didn't know how to take sort of bullet points and turn them into actions that represented love. And I think that's like one of the, the third things I often teach singles, but it comes up with the marriage individuals all the time. Like when you just talked about, you know, your spiritual state and your amen and all of those things that we just kind of mentioned, ultimately a person who is close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a person who was always doing and giving and creating. And so when we think of the Prophet ﷺ in his marriage, which I, I don't know, you know what happens in the hearts of men in general, but I know for women, the moment you mention the Prophet ﷺ in the home, and I bet you know too, what's the first thing women in your experience often refer to when they talk about how the Prophet ﷺ was in the home? He was uh, in service to his family and he took care of some of his own needs. Yeah, like, you know, oh, well, he, you know, he went and got the milk or he fixed his own shoe. And, and so women, of course, because one of the number one conversations, you know, and almost every marital household is who's going to do what, right, go to this example, because they're so moved by it, because here is a man who is assisting, who is not just assisting his wife, because I'm a helpful guy. Mm -hmm. He, he, he went ahead and took care of needs of his own. He was someone who, you know, saw a need and he met it. But one of the things that, you know, with the Prophet ultimately that I saw when I went and looked at just his interaction with his wives is that he was consistently in a state of giving to them, of, of being with them, of touching them, of talking to them, of being available to them. Asking about their states, what's going on, checking in. Yeah. Communicating. Yeah. 
but then on the other side of that, when you then, you know, get to see some of the, the examples we have of his wives, it's the same. You know, Khadija, we all love, and, the, and you know, that moment where the Prophet comes to Khadija after he sees Angel Jabril for the first time and he's shaking and she covers him and she assures him, you know, and, and that moment where she believes in him. And that's, that's a need that a lot of men and have is to have their wife believe in them and to be able to be vulnerable in, the, in a situation where they don't have all the things figured out and they don't quite know what they're going to do or they are feeling afraid to have a wife who is like you know there and supportive and reminds them of who he is and her faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was so strong so even in all of these examples the point I'm getting at is giving and being in that being a person who says I want to give to my spouse is like a game changer for relationships. Absolutely. Because when you go back to that like single mentality, what are they going to give from you? People get married and they're constantly focused on what they're not getting, what they're not getting, when they're not getting, what they're not getting. And of course, you know, you and I both work, you know, in counseling. So of course we have to have a conversation about, okay, well, let's figure out how we can get your needs met. Of course, it's important to find that balance for a couple. But what's so transformative is when someone first starts and if you notice, like all of mine are first, your spiritual, your, your, your personal growth is your job, your spirituality is your job. Well, so is being that person who creates action first, because to me, like I love M. Scott Peck when he always talks about how love, you know, real love is always in action. It's something that you do. It's created. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like a fire. You got to keep lit. You can't just expect it to burn for eternity. You know, you're not going to get that warmth and light. But it's something built by actions, though. It's built by tangible actions that are intentional. And so if people go into relationship thinking, how can I give? How can I make this person's day better? What can I do to lift them up? How can I reflect my appreciation, my gratitude? Just having the mindset that a great relationship is about being a giver or a creator of love is a huge shift for a lot of people. Right. It's like I said in my uh, Muslim marriage myths, I think it was like episode seven, which is that a lot of people want the light of love, but they don't want to deal with any of the heat, you know, going back to the fire analogy. Mm. And I love the example of the, you know, domestic support with the prophet, because you're right, because, you know, this is used a lot. And every each side uses sometimes certain, you know, I call them the Islam cards, right? But, you know, what's yeah. also interesting <laughs> is about that is absolutely the men that are doing nothing in the house or have no consciousness of being involved, they need to, you know, step up. Uh, but also, th we have to remember that while we did hear the prophet did sweep, you know, the ground, you know, sweep the floor and sew his own shoes and do this and do that. We didn't always hear other things like he changed diapers, or he, you know, was cooking food or, you know, so there are certain things that remained not associated with what he did around the house, which is an important reminder for all of us that we have there's a lot of things that has to get done. And we also have to discuss that as a couple, like, who's going to take out the trash every day or every other day. And, you know, we have to agree to what roles this will be what we're learning from this is that both male and female are have to be in service. And it doesn't mean that oh, domestic service is only ascribed to one side of the relationship and the outside service is only ascribed. No, it's like it can be a mixed bag, of course, why, why does that have to be such a big problem? So I think that's an important reminder that it has to be discussed and we also have to figure out what are our roles and that isn't necessarily rooted in fiqh, that has more to do with culture and custom. The other um, danger of that is if we go too extreme with let's say, you know, people like a Muslim man who 
literally just like I work and I pay the bills so I don't have to do anything else. And if you ask me for anything more, you're ungrateful and you're this and you're that. And I've also seen on the other end where you may have a woman who I'm going to work full time and you're still going to pay all the bills as a man and I'm not going to do any of the things you need as a man and you have to do everything I want as a spouse, uh, as a wife. So it's like I want my perks from Western feminism and Islamic fiqh, right? So there's a lot of imbalance happening from my observations and I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are about that. And what's so painful about that is, you know, again, we're missing the framework of what the whole point of marriage is about. And that's sort of one of my most driving motivations with Wives of Jannah. But even for myself, it's the reminder I come back to all, you know, over and over again, what is the point of marriage? And from there you go, what's the point of your life? Why are you here? And if we forget the answer to that ultimate question, or if we don't know the answer to that ultimate question, but most importantly, if you can't answer, why are you alive? What is the point of you being on this earth? And for us as Muslims, the answer, you know, the quick textbook answer is, well, we're here to worship Allah. But in practice, what does that look like? That's where we come back to the tangible. This, these relationships with all of this, I don't have to do this. I don't have to do this. and like You're missing out on an opportunity to serve someone who you love or to serve someone that you, with that contract, said you would protect or honor or nurture or take care of. And every single thing you do with the right intention is your ibadah. And the Prophet ﷺ, was there anyone better than him that in everything he did, we know he's remembering Allah. And so when you look at every opportunity with your family as another stepping stone towards Jannah, another stepping stone towards earning the mercy of Allah. It's a path of worship. Yes, it is a path of ibadah. It becomes that with your intention. And so I think that when people like sit down for a second and just look at, you know, when I say the chaos of the home, obviously I'm thinking of mine at times, you know, <laughs> where laundry's on the couch and the toys are all over the place and, you know, the dishes need to be put in the dishwasher. And that was just one. And these two kids are fighting, whatever. And we're all tired of like, there's just, you know, like my life is very busy. We're a big family, right? You know, just a lot that has to get done. There's resentment, there's frustration, there's irritation, and there's all those emotions, which, you know, they're normal from time to time. We all have our days. That's okay. But when you can step back and really see this whole opportunity in front of you as, how many different ways can you earn the pleasure of Allah right now? I really feel like it changes the conversation. You know, your wife is tired. Your husband is tired. they had a bad day. They're upset. They're going through grief. You know, there's something difficult with a child. Like the whole point is, you know, what you see with the Prophet and his wives consistently is they are mutually supporting each other. Yeah, and like you said, people can say that over and over again. Oh, I don't have to listen to you. I'm not gonna. A man's not gonna tell me what to do, or I'm not gonna be told what to do. Ordered around and controlled by a woman. It's like, well, you also don't need to listen or obey Allah either. That's the point, right? It's a choice, and so you've got to be conscious about your choices. And that result, and that comes from how do I make meaning of my life and these concepts and these principles. Uh, and in the end of the day. Um, we're, we are obeying and serving everything and everyone around us constantly, right? I mean, you listen when your boss tells you, you know, to be at work on set at 7am because you have to, you're going to obey, 
right? And so when your husband or your wife asks you to do something, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're trying to control me and this is patriarchy or whatever. It's like, well, subhanAllah, how come when it comes to your Uber driver who tells you you can't, you know, smoke in the back seat or you can't, you know, uh, do this or my bo- your boss or your doctor tells you don't eat this and take this medicine. We're obeying and listening to authority all the time and what? Entrusting ourselves, Sister Megan, which is Iman. We're entrusting ourselves. We're thinking our health will be more secure or my job if I listen to my boss or my doctor. So this is actually happening everywhere. It's just not always properly associated or linked in, perhaps. But you brought up a really important point, which could like totally dive deep into whole so many things. Right. Um, cause I feel like I could hear like every woman listening to this being like, but wait, especially women. Um, again, I think it's always important to offer a disclaimer that these kinds of conversations, at least what we've been talking about so far is not in the realm of emotional abuse, physical abuse, no. sexual abuse, of any kind not. of abuse. I, and I, I, I always repeat that because so often I write something on my, my wives of Jenna Facebook page or Instagram or one of my programs and I get a response or an email or comment of people. And the, but question is always because they're hearing it through the lens of their particular experience or the exceptions of the pattern. Yeah. 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 So when you say things like, well, this is just patriarchy. Well, yeah, there are cultural, there are cultural things that exist in the world and have always existed and probably will always exist that are not unique to Muslims where in which, you know, women are mistreated there, you know, or children have been mistreated. So for sure there is, you know, a need for us to have dialogue and conversations and to challenge the status quo, because there are a lot of really painful, unhealthy constructs. Yeah, for sure. Cultural norms. Yes. Yeah. So I felt like we have to say that first always, because I care a lot about anyone that's going to hear something. One of my one of the things I'm really sensitive to is I just don't ever want someone to hear something that I've said. And so like every talk I do, I always add that disclaimer. By the way, if you try to apply any of the marital advice I'm about to give you in this program, or if I've gone spoken at a conference, I said, and you're in the following scenarios, you're going to hurt yourself more. Of course. It's like the doctor saying, eat an apple, uh, you know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well, not if you're allergic to apples, right? Or if you have a bad reaction. I mean, of course, there's things that, um, you know, I hope people, it's a good reminder. Thank you, Megan. You know, like we need to have common sense and recognize that we're talking about general themes that apply to most of the population, right? Well, you know, but at the same time, we are not... uh, um, you know, veiled from all of the unhealthy and imbalanced constructs, abuse, and, you know, disequilibrium that does occur for sure. I mean, we're dealing with that all the time. It's for like sure. some things I just, I'm like, oh my God, why are you, how could you think that way still, right? But subhanAllah, you know, people have right. their own timeline for, like you said, growth and development. And we're going to be on that line of, of, or that pulse of growth, depending on what, how much effort and exposure uh, we have to those resources, but please continue. Yeah, thanks. No, I just I loved your point about just you know we're always obeying and we're listening. So that that's why I said after the disclaimer, we'll come back to these points. You know, one of the one there there are two ways that you could if we're going to stick with this word obedience, or let's just maybe change it to, because that gets complicated for Muslims as well. Let's change it to like honoring someone's request. Okay, there's two ways that you can do that. You know, you could listen to your boss at work, but you could resent them deep down. Or you could listen to your boss at work and trust that what they're telling you to do is going to, you know, get you to whatever end goal that you're working towards. And so in a relationship, there is always a choice. You know, you can coerce your spouse into doing things your way and get your way 
but at what cost? And so, you know, that's such a, an important thing to, to evaluate that, yeah, you are right. We, we do follow all these other orders, but what's happening in the heart, it doesn't really matter if you like your Uber driver or not. All you really care about is can he safely drive you, you know, to point A, from point A to point B. You don't got to like them. You don't have to like your manager. You don't have to like your boss. You don't have to really like your coworkers. You just have to be able to work with them and tolerate them because they're not your primary relationships. But when it comes to primary relationships, especially between a husband and a wife, obviously this extends later to, you know, your parents and other things, but specific in a marital, you know, relationship, it gets trickier because it can't be strictly functional, right? Resentment in the heart is, you know, going to destroy emotional intimacy. And when emotional intimacy is not, is not solid, physical intimacy suffers. And so this is one of the, the, the key pieces I think that's I'm consistently educating people on is if your physical relationship is struggling in your marriage, you know, usually the precursor to that is your emotional relationship is struggling in your marriage. And by struggle, I don't mean uh, the mechanics of things like physically speaking, but just the fact that it's happening, it's not happening, whether it makes you feel close, you're not close, you, you feel attracted to your spouse, you don't. The emotional realm is the big key to all of that. And so, you know, that's where that conversation, like you mentioned, need to sit down and really talk about well, what, what do you want your relationship to look like? And you hear from the husband and you hear from the wife. Well, what do you value the most in a relationship? And what I found, and this is the good news, because this might have sounded really heavy for everybody a little bit, especially if you're still single and you're like, oh, my God, you know, this sounds intense. You know, here's the good news. The good news is I would say for most people that I've ever worked with, the solutions to their marital challenges actually turn out to be pretty simple. And I bet you've had the same experience. Once you kind of get through the initial, like, what's going on? And, okay, what's your issue? What's your issue? Most of the time, by my second or third call, we're like, we found a pretty easy solution. And suddenly, 75% of their stress and their worry and their fighting is reduced. And so the good news is, is that as human beings, we, we feel really complicated, but we're also very simple. And that there are simple ways for people to work things out, the housework and the kids and, you know, who's doing what and, and who's going to listen to who. But the key to that is vulnerability. And why is that? to that is vulnerability. And why is that? So this was something that I discovered first in myself when I sort of started this personal development journey that I thought I was like this super open, you know, vulnerable person. But the truth was, I realized that I was an extremely guarded person, that I was not vulnerable at all in any relationship. And of course, I was younger. So there wasn't as much experience for that. But whether it was with family, with friends, with myself, in my own prayers and draw, I recognized I was a very guarded person. I was not comfortable with the idea of being vulnerable and opening myself up to that. And then becoming, you know, learning that there's a whole art to vulnerability has been 
just huge for me. And then how I'm able to relate to others, whether it's my children, whether it's my husband, whether it's, you know, my parents, uh, for my father passed away, whether it's my sibling, whether it's friends, you know, vulnerability is key because what I've, what I've been trying to help others understand is the solutions are simple, but they require vulnerability because if you look at the examples that I've given so far, the idea that, you know, personal growth needs to sort of be like a lifestyle, that your iman is your, is your job, um, that love is an action, that you become a person that gives. Ultimately, you can't do any of these three at a high level if you're not willing to be vulnerable with yourself and with your Lord first and then with others. Vulnerability is key because all of these things require maybe doing something new, maybe admitting that when your spouse says this or does this, it makes you feel, you know, shame or embarrassed or not good enough. Or, you know, sometimes we do got to get down to these levels where we start to recognize or the other way, if your spouse would just do this one little thing, you'd feel like, you know, a rock star every time you enter the house, you would feel amazing, right? They're usually not complicated, but getting to the solutions requires some vulnerability. And in absence of vulnerability is where you have the the, you know, telling their spouse every single thing that's wrong with them and being completely blind to your role in the relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for some of the men out there, uh, to simplify it, no risk, uh, no gain principle. But what we're risking here is exposure of our emotions, our, our fears, or the things that we're not um, we're too afraid or don't have the courage to expose to our spouses because we're afraid we'll be rejected or they might think less of us, right? So for instance, if you need support or you had a bad day at work, you know, when your wife says, how's your day, honey? You're like, oh, nothing. Everything's fine. But you're, you are humiliated at work today and you don't want to talk about it because you're afraid of what that'll do um, to your perception, let's say, right? But I would also add, Sister Megan, that vulnerability, I have actually a feelings table and the two axes, X and Y, is vulnerability and empathy. You need those two because yeah. vulnerability is our ability Thank to you. open up and and expose what we need. And empathy is our ability to understand, feel with, and give uh, what the person needs, right? So it actually, they each feed off of each other. I can only be more empathetic the more I know about what's going on for you. Because sometimes, I'm sure you've seen this in couples work, somebody would be like, I felt this way for the last 10 years, but I never said anything because I was afraid or I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to make too many demands at the beginning of our marriage. But then that sets the stage for expectation, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And when you mention about empathy is the key to empathy and being able to, you know, to, to offer that to someone else is always going to come back to how connected to yourself you are and how connected to your own experiences and feelings and fears and beliefs. You know, it's like, I always say, I don't have to have walked in your shoes to understand you, but I have certainly walked in mine. Mm. And so, you know, and, and I think again, the good news is, is both vulnerability. I consider vulnerability and empathy art in the sense that it is something that you can get better at over time, that you can practice, you can develop. And so like, if you're single, people are like, well, how am I going to do that? I'm single, you know, empathy and vulnerability is actually, you know, core. Thank you for bringing that up. You know, at, at, in any meaningful relationship you have now, maybe, you know, you have relationships that don't usually go too deep, but if you're around people for long enough, if you've got friends, for over a decade, someone's gone through a hard moment. Someone's gone through a loss. Someone's, you know, you know, the hard knocks of life have hit them in some way, you know? And so depending on how in touch with your own self you are 
is the ability you're also going to be able to probably show that support to somebody else and truly empathize with them. And what people need in different situations is different. Like some men do want to talk about it. Some men don't need to talk about it. But I would say from a wife to a husband, but all men need to know that they have, you know, the support of their wife. Right. Vice versa. Yeah, for sure. I would I would put it maybe in also a, a simple model, which I use, which is what, you know, um, bringing it back to this point of, like you said, a lot of things are simple when we get past all the baggage, the resentment, the blocks that don't allow us to be vulnerable or empathetic because we've crystallized that negative story about the person based on that hurt or pain we've experienced. And oftentimes, Megan, many spouses want the same things. Yes. I'm like, I talk to this side <laughs> and that side before we do any teamwork. And it's like, oh, I want better communication. I want love and respect. I want affection. I would like this. And I talk to the husband. He says all the same things. But it's going to manifest differently at times or the same. Sorry, sorry. I was going to say not just that. I got to tell you something. Not just that, but what's fascinating. So sorry. Uh, when you mentioned empathy is a lot of times, not just that they want the same thing, but you realize that they're both feeling the exact same way in the marriage. SubhanAllah. And so like I had a couple, a couple weeks ago and that was, and this has been repeated where I'm like, so you know exactly how your husband feels and you know exactly how your wife feels because they have both expressed how they feel in the marriage almost the same way. And so I'm like, so turn to each other because now you know exactly how your spouse is hurting or feeling. And they're like, whoa, that's really big because they, before that they're, they're feeling isolated. They're feeling alone in their pain. But when you can look across the eyes and go, wow, if I, I'm, we're actually both feeling the same again, that's good news because you can connect on that. Now you can understand each other. And now you're more motivated to listen to your spouse because you understand how they feel versus, you know, it just feels like, this list of problems and this list of problems. So sorry, I just, I had to dive that in. Sorry. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And taking it further kind of to the science of, you know, the human condition, which is that we are created as bonding creatures, right? Creatures of bonding, social mm -hmm. mammals. We need each other. And from eight, from birth all the way until death, humans are constantly looking for a sense of belonging. And so sometimes in marriage, if I feel afraid that my wife might leave me because I'm never around or because I've just been too short or whatever, I'm never going to voice that necessarily, right? If most men won't have the courage to say, oh, I'm, I'm worried you might leave me one day. No, what we do is we, we create a defense and then we start to create perhaps sometimes a story that allows us to quit before we get fired even in relationship. And then we start to play that dance where everyone's feeling the same thing, but no one's talking about it and no one's dealing with it. So really what you're telling us here is that it's like these steps, which I, which I often use, we have to reveal, release, and replenish, right? We reveal what's, what are the issues? What's the energy, the negative energy that's clogging our dynamic and our flow. And then we have to release that charge and energy by acknowledgement, by communication, by ritual ceremony. Uh, and we replenish it through what actions now do we need to take to cure this or to resolve this or to replenish this based on what we both realize is our truth as a couple. What do you think? Well, and I love that you ended with action because that's always like my job is always coming back to is so now that I know what you want to feel or experience, what action will create that experience? And it's always coming back to action. It's all if you if you can't do it, then you can't create it. 
And that's such a key, that's such a key understanding. Well, I just want to be able to communicate better. We just want to be able to enjoy our time together. I just want to stop fighting about things. I just want more help. You know, the action is going to be the key to that. So I love that system. Um, reveal, you said reveal, release and replenish, right? That's the, your mm-hmm. three R's. That's awesome. And the replenish yeah. part is going to be, again, a consistent set of actions or a new set of actions or an introduction of new actions that are going to change the chemistry and the relationship. It's going to change how you talk. Or it's going to change what you do, or it's going to change your sexual experience together. Or it's going to change, you know, what kinds of things you do as a couple. It's that change can only happen with action. And so the action is key. And a lot of people stop. They, they might do the revealing part. They talk about things and they talk about things and they talk about things and nothing changes because they haven't introduced a new set of actions that are going to help shift, you know, what they're doing. Right. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes we're just revealing all the stuff that bothers us and we stop there or we reveal and we keep releasing it. Like we keep talking about, Oh, these are the issues. This is that, but then we don't do anything about it. And Nike, if you're listening, I want a sponsorship because I'm always telling everyone your <laughs> logo, just do it. You know, I even had a brother say, I said, let's you know, get a Nike shirt that, and it says, just do it on it and let That's your wife awesome. wear it so that you can always remember to be vulnerable or empathetic or connect, right? She'll, she'll remind you the tagline. So this is a very important tagline. Um, but I want to, I want to ask you some questions, sister, uh, Megan, from my, um, listeners that submitted. So one question I have, there's single brothers and sisters out there who are on these apps. And one thing that I've heard from people is it seems like a lot of the profiles there's this extreme, these are these extreme pulls in attitude or approach to the premarital courtship. It's either, you know, you have to be a very good modern, uh, excuse me, modest, you know, virgin Muslim or Muslima, and you're, you're, you know, selling the whole, I'm so Muslim and we're going to build a nice Muslim family. Or it's like the other extreme of, I'm expecting you to get sexual with me on the first date. And this is happening, right? I mean, I've heard this from both sides, right? And from male and female who have done the same thing on first dates with Muslim men and women. And we're talking about people that also love Allah and his messenger, right? But then they end up hooking up on first dates or first week. And I'm wondering, as a woman, do you think that there is a pressure there? Well, two things. One, I want you to address why you think there's such extreme pulls right now, or the majority of us are thinking this way. Two, um, do you feel that with the world an onslaught of over-sexualization pornography, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's, uh, there is that um, sexist double standard that exists in some Muslim families and cultures of, okay, men can do whatever they want, but women can't. And so now women are also saying, well, why can't we explore our sexuality or our intimacy with men before marriage? Men are doing it with non-Muslim women, and now they're also doing it with Muslim women. And do you think that Muslim women feel a pressure to compete, let's say, with all the stuff they know is out there? as far as what it means to be a sexual being or to have a healthy sexual palate, i.e. what is pornography uh, instilling in all these men's skulls or most of these men who are who may be using it. Do you think that women are aware of this from your knowledge and realizing like I have to basically compete with all this garbage that they're watching and I ha- even have to sometimes get that approval or validation before we even get married because some guys may make that the issue. How many hours do we have left for this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, for the, for the polar extremes, uh, my experience has been mixed with that. I do know that 
um, from the women that I talk to or work with or I'm friends with. But I mean, I think having been involved in the singles realm for a long time, I have a course called Finding Mr. Right. It's currently inactive. Um, but for, for many years, uh, my primary focus was helping women get married. And we had a huge focal point on using um, the matchmaking websites because that was something that a lot of people were turning to and writing their profiles and things like that. So I have a lot of experience in that area. And I would say for women, the experiences are pretty bad and pretty negative. And I, and I have been shocked to find out how many men are using the Muslim matrimony websites as hookup sites. Um, I'm not even sure why they're bothering um, if they want to go and have sex with someone, I'm not even sure why they're bothering to be on the Muslim website. I mean, like, I don't know why that even makes a difference for them to go and commit zina. It's haram. It's a sin. Um, and, but ultimately, you know, and yes, there is the other extreme for the women where it, it kind of goes back to that example I gave of like this, you know, fantasy or super ultra religious spouse um, model men have their own version of that as well as women have their version of that. So yeah, the polar, the the polar extremes are there. I like to believe that there is still a very healthy middle ground um, because I believe that in the world in general, that the majority of people are good. I believe the majority of men are good. I believe the majority of women are good. I mean, I do hold that belief um, that the middle is the majority, but when it comes to these websites, it seems like the majority aren't on them. And so you are getting both extremes. Um, for the women specifically, I hear a lot more negatives than I hear positives. And I do hear a lot of men approaching them wanting either to meet up for sex after they go out to dinner the first time. And I think part of the challenge in all of this is that there is a pressure to get married because if you are a Muslim that has taqwa, specifically addressing the women, because you've kind of brought that angle up, then dating is off, you know, the options, you're not going to go on dates, you're not going to have other relationships. So you are holding out for marriage. Um, and sometimes the desperation to get married leads people to make choices that they wouldn't make if there were more honorable men around. And it's, in that you know, you could look at society in one of two ways, who ultimately controls sort of the, I guess we'll call it like the love marital pool. And both spouses have a lot of influence. But I would say that women, if, if the women held firm to the principles of Islam, or if we looked at the world, once upon a time, women did not hook up on dates. They did not have sex before marriage. Like that was the norm at a period of time in the world, right? There were more values and principles that were held. Men understood that there were certain hoops they have to go through to get married. And as a result of that, society followed suit, right? So even here in America, people used to go out on chaperoned dating, Right. right. They might have courtship. had yeah, courtship. They might have had dances. We've all seen like movies with the you know, the I don't know what you call that kind of dancing, that polite dancing they do in lines and groups or whatever. I'm thinking Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, and that was like kind of the extent of it. Of course, people can always sneak off and do wrong. That's always been in society, but there was a healthier model for finding a partner. And today that model is completely gone. Everything is open. Everything is okay in terms of culture and society. And even if you're living in the Muslim world where that's not the culture outside, a lot of people are living the culture of the West, you know, inside their homes, on their phones and their laptops, whatever, whether it's pornography, whether it's just Netflix, whether it's whatever. Right. Um, the cultural mindset is, is completely shifted. So I do think that women who are human beings who are doing their best 
often end up compromising on values and principles trying to get married because they want to get married, because they feel pressured to get married. There are certain Muslim cultures that for sure that I've dealt with over and over again that just put so much pressure. And the parents would rather see their daughters married and have that box ticked off. Oh, it's a contract. You're married. Okay, done. Then care about the kind of relationship they're going to be living in. And that to me is, is heartbreaking. But yes, there is a lot of pressure. And I know that for Muslim women, you know, one of the things that they consistently are telling me is, Megan, on the second email, men are sending me lists of sexual positions and asking if they're open to it. And that those are kinds of things that just, you know, and women are consistently shocked. And it's fascinating. I've had these conversations around, like, say, the next generation, like the older generation, our elders. And I can't tell you how many men and women have equally responded. If I ever knew that that happened or if someone ever did that to me or if that was my kid, like they, that guy would be, you know, punched in the face. Like there would be some like or smacked across the face. There would be a, a, a shock to somebody behaving like that. But now we're actually debating if this is normal, if it's okay, maybe people need this kind of stuff. And for sure, I believe it's because pornography has crept into everyone's lives. And again, like, let's go back to the beginning of what you and I were saying. What's the point of your life? What's the point of marriage? The problem is in these, these matchmaking sites, these conversations, no one's thinking of Allah. They're thinking, what's in it for me? And their, folk, their sole focus is biological processes. They're not thinking, how can I marry this woman and honor her and protect her. It's chivalry. What's chivalry? That's like the idea is gone. Muslim male honor. Where is this? This idea of building a family that worships Allah, that knows Allah. Those conversations aren't happening. But I think on the other side, we kind of can't be surprised. Because, you know, our as Muslims, we're humans, right? We have the entire variety of people practicing Islam. From people, may Allah guide them back almost on the way out the door to people who Islam is cultural for them and they don't really practice right now. And so, again, that's like when you come back to that, that part of your iman, your marriage is going to reflect your relationship with Allah. Your marriage is going to reflect how your iman is doing. The person you pick, where you're at in your journey, how you behave in your relationship. There is the cultural side, but I always would say Islam is stronger than culture. And by what I mean by that is the values that Islam has, the values that I think that the man that Islam builds and the woman that Islam builds is stronger when it's followed than whatever's going on around us. And I think for those of us that are trying really hard in you know, Western countries to practice Islam, we understand that. When we're sticking to our values and our values are stronger than the culture around us as long as we follow it. So I, I'm not surprised that it's happening but it's, it's very disappointing. And so, yes, the practicing Muslim woman, she's kind of stuck in that angle where the, even the guy who is hooking up with women, he had multiple girlfriends, you know, he was intimate with a lot of people through college, whatever. When it's time for marriage, maybe it's a good thing that he starts to think, I need a righteous wife. I need someone else that didn't mess around like me because, oh, my God, I could have kids one day and she's going to raise them. I need a good woman. And so maybe if we did look for the positive in there, maybe if we gave him a little more credit than it just being about a virgin and that he recognizes that marriage is serious and he needs a good person for it. 
But the challenge is, is he worthy of that person that he's seeking after? Exactly. Because look, I don't think like men have a, you know, a better chance or right that they can mess around and then get a good righteous wife. Because we don't do that for sisters, right? If a sister went through that, you know, lifestyle, and then she's like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, realign and make Tauba and I want a good righteous man. It's like, we won't hold the same space, right? Necessarily. Culturally. No, we do not. I'm not saying that's correct. I'm just saying from what we see. And that's not a Muslim thing, by the way. And I feel like Muslims often need to hear that. That is a long-standing across the globe for century after century thing. <laughs> it's like, it's not unique to Muslim culture. Everybody. Yes. With many religions and cultures. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and like, I think that, yeah, it's just important to, we have to be sincere in our deen because I've also seen cases where, you know, the person appears to be religious, but they're actually just better at appearing religious rather than being an italics religious, right? Being. And so, cause I've seen cases like that too, where, you know, it's, it's a different extreme where it's like, I'm quoting Islam and Quran and my rights and what you should do as a husband, but like, I'm still pretty self-absorbed and, you know, I don't really have a clue about what it means to make my husband happy. I just see what I want and the utility factor once again. So it can happen for either of us. That's why we all have to be sincere in our pursuit of knowledge in Islam and excellence in character. And you're not ever better than anybody because you think so. Really, you don't know. There's people that never, they committed way more sins than you. And they might have a higher station with Allah with a person who, quote unquote, never did any of the major sins sins along the way, right? It comes down to your state of consciousness and how you made meaning of the ups and downs of your life and what you did about it. Again, the action point, right? So men should never assume that, oh, if this hijabi is hooking up with me, um, oh, this she's automatically not a woman I would marry because she's hooking up with me. I'm like, well, you're hooking up with her too. Yeah. You're, you're at the same level. You're not superior to her level. You're at the same state of consciousness. Maybe you two can say, look, this isn't good. This is wrong what we're doing, but we actually have a good connection in chemistry. Why don't we actually commit to doing this properly so Allah can bless it and get married and no more of this, right? right? That would be a sincere, you know, reaction to that. Not like, oh yeah, she was good, but then once I re- learned that she would hook up, I'm not going to consider her anymore. It's like, why not? Right. You're that you're that guy for, in her eyes, you know? And so that's something to, to keep in mind. A quick question I had also before I let you go is some sisters and brothers who have been, you know, let's, again, with their category of they're good people, they are trying to take marriage seriously for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Because these are people, let's say I work with, you know, directly. So I know what they're, how they are and what they're going through. And they might be trying, Sister Megan, for a year or two or three, and they're starting to lose hope. What advice do you have for them? You mean they're, they're, they're losing hope in finding a spouse? Correct. Right. Yeah. Like they just keep fishing and and there's no good bites, you know? Well, I think the first thing that is sort of a, it's not going to make the loneliness go away. It's not going to make the longing to have a, a spouse with you go away. But I think one thing is there's a couple of angles to this. First of all, spiritually, there is a danger sometimes where a person starts to resent the rules of Islam. Because they're like, you know, if I wasn't Muslim, then at least, you know, I could, you know, ask my coworker out on a date. I could go to the party that, you know, my friends are going to from one of my classes and, you know, maybe I'd meet somebody or maybe they even. I can marry that nice white guy, Brad, from college. That's still. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I and there's a lot of women that I know, um, like working professionals and religious and hijab and whatever 
all of the, for example, the Muslim men they've spoken to have just been, oh man, we just got to do better with the men, you know, just not emotionally intelligent, evolved, right? I'm up. trying. Yeah. I'm I trying. I, I really am. I'm, I'm so overbooked. You know, I'm trying. <laughs> I know. I mean, and so, but then they have these really great, nice, awesome, non-Muslim male coworkers that are like, that's okay. Like, you know, sure. We can go visit at your parents' house. Like they don't even mind the rules. Like, Oh, I don't, I don't touch. That's fine. Let's just go have coffee. Like they're kind and they're good and they volunteer and they're, you know, whatever. And I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is generally part of the fitna is really great guys, but they're not Muslim, for example, like genuinely, like they're all, sure. all intents and purposes. We know they're good people. And I've, I work with a lot, yeah, a lot of women and, and they're like, I've had this coworker for the past year and he's so great, whatever, but he's not Muslim. And what do I do? And, and so these things are out there. And so the first angle is, I like to say is that even though it might look like everybody else has it easier, they don't. And I'm saying non-Muslims, like how many people are in their mid thirties going to bars after work, trying to meet someone, you know, like the whole happy hour after work space, um, people still going to nightclubs, trying to meet someone, people going to mixers at churches and maybe at synagogues or, you know, events, people are still trying to meet someone. And it's not easy to find a life partner for anybody. So I think that's an important distinction. Hooking up, sure, that's easy. But is that what you want in your life? right? Is that the standard you want? No. You know, dating someone temporarily, trying it out and seeing how it goes. Is that the value that you have for, you know, for that practicing Muslim? No, that's not what they want. They want a life partner. So I think it's, it's important to know that people, Muslim or not, are having a hard time finding solid life partners, marriage, somebody that wants to commit, someone that wants to build a family. This is something a lot of people are struggling with across the board in general. So that's first. And I say that again, just because you know, you might feel like it's only you because of all these rules, but the reality is other people are having the same hard time, but compromising themselves in the process of trying to get that commitment. Right. Yeah. And it's happening in and out of our community, of course. Our community outside. Yeah. The second part is, you know, again, life is a test. And so for every single moment, you know, addressing those people who are practicing and they're taking it serious, your patient and you're not going outside the boundaries that Islam has set, and you're not compromising your Islamic values, every single one of those moments, you're being rewarded. And remembering that and holding on to that, I think is really important. I admire, you know, all of the young people that could do anything they wanted on their college campuses or even high school students, right? The world is out there, and yet they're choosing not to, and they have that taqwa, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees that. And I think remembering that in those hard times and perhaps this patience that you're going through right now and the discipline that you're having to stick to those boundaries, you know, that's another castle for you in Jannah. And so that's, you know, that's definitely the second piece for that is you're struggling, but the patience and remembering why again you're here will help balance, I think, yeah, some of those, the hardships, the loneliness, the feelings, um, you know, because again, like we said, everything is a test. So being single is a test, being married is a test, you know, everything is a test. And so ultimately, if you can hold on to that iman and be patient, 
Allah's going to reward you. Yeah. And let me expand that a bit because when we take it as a test, again, it's not just to sound, you know, manufactured and okay, I guess just life has to suck for me, but rather see it a spiritual lens of look, if you're one of those sincere individuals that's taking your marriage, your relationship to Allah, your akhirah seriously, see it as a good sign that you're not married yet because that means Allah is letting things brew in the way that he knows for you to get the maximum uh, outcome, yeah. right? It's like, oh, well, how come this sister, she doesn't pray, she never cares about Islam, and she got married like within a month, and the guy's hot and a doctor, how come I'm the one who's a good, righteous person, and you know, and it's like, look, because life isn't about applying just a, a code, and, and, and everything's going to be the same for everyone. Yes, there's going to be contradictions or things that don't always fit, like how come people that, you know, get things easier than me when I've, I'm supposed to be better, you know, but that goes back to, do are we really what we think we are, or are we wherever we are with Allah? And only Allah will show us that through our life, right? And people that get married faster or easier doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be successful. In fact, statistically, it may suggest the opposite. That it's going to be, you know, end in divorce sooner than later if they didn't take that stuff seriously. Their dean, premarital, you know, education and skills or during marriage getting support they need along the way. I mean, this happens all the time. So you don't know. And so when it takes longer, it could just be a way to understand that it's because Allah's prepping you and prepping Mr. Wright or, or Mrs. Wright you know, uh, wherever they are right now, going through what they're going, and as soon as it's the nasib is there, it's going to click and you won't be able to stop it. It's going to find you, even though you can't find it. This is how we understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, working the mechanisms. And I'd also like to add, you know, for those of us who are in this boat, I swear, last two years, I was speaking to um, three women that I knew, actually, who are in this process, and they were at that brink, Sister Megan, of giving up. Really, like, I'm just going to go get a boyfriend. I'm done. I'm just going to marry whoever. I don't care if he's Muslim. Like, I can't. In some situations, like, the woman was divorced and had a kid. So she, her, her chances were already, you know, harder, let's say, right? Or if you're in a situation, even if you were married before without kids. And all three of them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed them. Like, right, right when they were about to, like, really snap. Like, it was those times, Megan, you know, when I get off the phone, I'm like, oh, God, please, you know, she's been trying so hard. It's been two years. She's been patient. I don't even know how long she can do this. Like, you have to help her. You have to give the relief. And then they are, like, a month later, they're like, Brother Kareem, I met someone. It's like, finally, that one profile <laughs> out of the last 20. Yes. The guy was like, oh, he's actually really sweet. And, like, my mom loves him. And then, and boom, 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 boom. Right. And now they're here. They are. So you never know. And sometimes, you, you know, know, so we got to keep that in mind and recognize to get out of our own um, bubble and recognize there's a huge orchestra of notes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the you know conductor of. And we've got to listen to the music. Right. And pay attention to what's going on. And and. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say because you brought that in, but you've got to be like using your metaphor a part of the orchestra or the music yeah. you've got to be and, and I, cause I, the last two tips in there with everything we just said is like, don't give up. You have to stay active. A lot of people are like, I can't meet anyone. I don't have anybody, you know, try something new, try, you know, try different avenues. Like for example, a lot of people that I know they're, they're working and I'm like, no one's going to find you in your office every day, Monday through Friday, nine to six. This is where you are a couple hours of traffic. Like no one knows you exist or you're doing your PhD and you're in a library or lab every day of the week hiding out on campus. Nobody knows you exist. 
And so like when I taught the Finding Mr. Right course, which I hope will come back out uh, here so soon, um, we're working on some stuff. That was part of it was how many different new actions can I help people take to meet other people? And sometimes we're like, I've done everything, um, but there's something new to do. And so as much as it does get exhausting, I understand to keep trying to talk to people and network and go places and talk to friends and talk to family members and do all these things again. It's important. And the second part, which you kind of mentioned, I don't know if that's what you intended, but that's what you made me think of is, you know, be open to every proposal. Like just be open to a conversation, be open to someone because you don't really know who that person is. And you might have, you know, Miss Wright and Mr. Wright in your mind. I think everybody has the person they think they're going to marry. Right. We, and we all have judgments. That's natural. Right. So we just like, oh, you're, you don't fit into how the guy I wanted to marry is going to look. So I'm not even going to assume I could like you. So we stop ourselves like you're saying. So. Yes, exactly. And so like be open. And one of the things that like when you talked about women, you know, and I, I tell men the same thing is I'm like, go to a mall and sit down and just people watch. And I want you to observe all the different people that look like they're a couple, whether they're holding hands or obviously a husband and wife or obviously a family. I just want you to just look at the people for a day. And I usually say this either, especially for women who feel like what you mentioned earlier, that whole, like, I've got to compete with, you know, our over-sexualized world kind of stuff and whatever. I'm like, and then I they go to the mall and I said, I want you to tell me how many supermodel wives you find. <laughs> and they come back and they're like, I, I, none. And I'm like, and yet you saw all these happily looking married people and couples, boyfriends. Girl, I don't care if they're married or not. I was like, just go find couples. And they're like, no, everybody looks pretty normal. I mean, yeah, this person's attractive or nice or whatever, but I saw all shapes and sizes and all different kinds of people together and what can you learn from that? Exactly. And it's, that's such an important lesson for the women and the men. It's a great It's like what you said. Yeah, is that love, companionship, marriage, an awesome relationship, you know, is always beyond just the external. And so, yeah, you got to look for someone that you are attracted to. But the thing is about chemistry is it can make you attracted to someone that if you just looked at their picture for five seconds – you know, maybe if you saw that, you know, I told you a lot, if you looked at your spouse and you saw a photograph of them, you know, and, and you went back in time 10 years and you're like, oh my God, I've never married that person, right? Because you're like, that's not what I envisioned. But yeah, here's this person, you know, you talk to people that are married 10, 15, 20 years and they're so in love with their spouse and find them attractive and adore them and everything because all of the pieces fit. And so that's why I tell people, give someone a chance because you don't know when you talk to them and you add in not just their body, but their mind and their soul and the, and the human being that's in front of you, you don't know the gem of a person you might suddenly meet. And I'm like, oh my God, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of them. But now that I met them, they're beautiful. They're handsome. Treasure isn't found unless you dig under the ground. You got to dig a little, right? Sometimes. So that's my last piece of that is just be open to any proposal. At least have a conversation. You don't lose anything by having a conversation. Absolutely. I would also add as a practical tip for those of us who are, you know, pushing and working with the online platforms, you know, is keep up with it. Um, there's seems like there's new ones coming out all the time, but they all have different pros and cons. But one thing is from, you know, uh, young men or women I've worked with, some, you know, often I'll say, Le why don't you share your profile with me? Let me look at it. And they're usually and terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I get them and, and it's like, okay, cool. Or here are all the pictures I use and I just and I just basically consult them. Right. And I'm like, and what I always do, Megan, is I say, look, I have t I have my own tips. And I just say, look, before I give you any of that, 
I'm going to read your profiles out loud to you. <laughs> and they great. just listen to it. And then they're just like, oh, my God, that sounded horrible. That was choppy. That's like it sounded too all over the place or too this or too that. And I'm like, exactly. And then they basically say all the same things I was about to tell them. <laughs> that's awesome. Right? So, so that's a tip for everybody to consider, you know. You want to also capture and represent a, and whole paint a picture of who you really are, yeah, or at least something that makes you stand out and richer. It's just like a college essay. You don't write the generic ones to get into the school you wanted to, right? And a lot of us write the same things, right? I love a, I love a slam. I want a good wife and family. I love traveling, I love traveling and adventure. Yeah, exercise. And, and the person <laughs> clearly doesn't look like they exercise or, you know, there's no picture of them ever leaving their state, you know? So it's like, is, are, are any of those things real? I, I don't know. So look, let's get... Again, that goes back to being vulnerable, sincere, right? Is let's yeah, let's yeah. expose who we really are because I guarantee you, if I see a profile that's so fresh and I'm like, wow, just the just the profile standing out from all the other 20 I read today is gonna make me go through it. Even if you're not the one, it's gonna make me pay attention. So that's something yes. to keep in mind, inshallah. Yes, that's for sure. Like that one. And I always tell the guys, please stop taking pictures in front of cars you don't own. I'm done. <laughs> With sunglasses on. Okay, I'm done. Her link, Wives of Jenna, will be in the description of the show. If you'd like to work with Megan or myself, you can find the links there. Thank you so much. We hope to have you on again soon. Sounds good. Thank you.